You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1844th edition of the St Edmundsbury News Talk. The editor of this edition is myself, Graham Parley. The producer is Harvey Johnson and your readers are Val Fletcher and myself, Graham Parley. I should also like to mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And what we will do is we will start with headlines. The first headline is, Cab drivers take to streets in protest over council policy. Historic facade set for restoration and new windows. Could new boundaries harm town's position in Suffolk? New bungalows and retirement homes could be built at farm. Cab drivers take to streets in protest over council policy. Dozens of cab drivers from across West Suffolk took to the streets in Bury St Edmunds to protest against changes brought in which would see them having to make new hackney carriage taxis wheelchair accessible. The changes, which came into effect in 2016 but have recently been met with criticism among cabbies across Brandon, Haverhill, Mildenhall, Newmarket and Bury, were brought in by West Suffolk Council's licensing department. In a show of protest, cab drivers set off from Olding Road in Bury at 8am on Monday morning, ending up at West Suffolk House, where West Suffolk Council staff are based to hand over a general statement detailing their frustration at the policy. West Suffolk Council has defended the policy and said that within the next month it would be carrying out a review, engaging with people with disabilities and taxi owners and businesses. Mark Goodchild, a taxi driver in Bury and one of the main organisers of the demonstration, said making all new vehicles wheelchair accessible was ridiculous after many cabbies had struggled through the coronavirus pandemic. We are going to lose so much trade because we can't pick up the elderly or the disabled, he said. In Bury, over 50% of the vehicles are wheelchair accessible. Mark added that while around 60 cab drivers had had financial support from the council over the last 18 months, the rest, over 500, had not. Another cab driver, John Farthing, already has a wheelchair accessible vehicle. He estimated implementing the changes had cost him around £40,000 and considered making all vehicles wheelchair accessible not worth it. I've got a wheelchair access bus and in the three years that I've been on the rank with the bus, I've taken about two people off the van, he said, so there's no point, really. 
John added he knew other drivers who were considering leaving the industry if they were faced with making the changes to their vehicles. Councillor Andy Drummond, Cabinet Member for Regulatory and Environment at West Suffolk Council, said, It is important that people are able to let us know their concerns. So I thank the trade for this general statement that we will now look into in more detail and we will update the general statement organiser with what steps we intend to take. As we have previously outlined, this policy has been in place for a number of years now and we have already announced a policy review which will involve engagement with wheelchair users, disability forums, taxi drivers and the customers. A West Suffolk Council spokesman added it had paid out COVID-19 grants to 85 taxi and private hire drivers. They said taxi drivers were emailed about the grants and the council communications team also posted out how to apply for the grants on their social media and issued press releases to the media. There is also information on the council website. And in a letter to Councillor Drummond, West Suffolk Green Party said the requirements all new taxis should be wheelchair accessible was excessive and would disadvantage people with other mobility issues who find getting into the wheelchair accessible vehicles difficult due to their higher profile. It added a better course would be for the council to ensure there were sufficient numbers of wheelchair accessible vehicles through its operation of the licensing scheme. The letter said the policy would encourage diesel vehicles onto the roads at a time when the council planned to attain net zero by 2030 and ensuring new cars were electric or at the very least hybrid would be a better policy. Restoration work and environmental improvements will be carried out as part of a major redevelopment project at a prominent Bury St Edmunds site in the coming weeks. Scaffolding is being installed around the Victorian facade of the former post office to allow for restoration work and the installation of new windows. Following the post office's move to neighbouring WH Smith, West Suffolk Council purchased 17 and 18 Cornhill for multi-million pound redevelopment. The project will see the historic facade retained while market thoroughfare will be widened by more than 50% and new business frontages facing onto St Andrew Street South and market thoroughfare will be created. The scheme includes two ground floor business units with 12 flats above. When finished, a new shop front will curve from St Andrew Street South into market thoroughfare which will increase in width from 2.4 metres to 3.8 metres. The Cornhill facade is being retained, however a step has been removed to improve access and a second arch will be created to serve the wider market thoroughfare. Meanwhile, the building will include solar panels for electricity and be heated by an air source heat pump. Work to protect the Victorian facade has already seen a retention system in place for nine months. It was removed in July, while the rest of the building, much of it built at a later date, was demolished. 
The project is due to be completed next year. Councillor Susan Glossop, West Suffolk Council Cabinet Member for Growth, said, The Victorian Front is an important part of our town's history and heritage. This scaffolding enables work to further help protect and enhance the front, which is in the town centre conservation area. Not only that, it also enables us to carry out improvements that will help us achieve our environmental ambitions for this site, for the businesses that will work there and the residents who will live there. Could new boundaries harm town's position in Suffolk? Nearly three months ago, proposals to radically change most parliamentary constituencies in Suffolk were published and these have now led to serious fears that one of its largest towns could effectively be cut off from the rest of the county. And in both political and business circles, there are growing concerns that the creation of a cross-border constituency linking Haverhill with Halstead in Essex could impact the integrity of the county. Cross-county constituencies do exist in other parts of the country, but they are not common, and there are fears that this could be weakening structures that bind Suffolk together at a time when the county as a whole is bidding to be part of a devolution trial. At present, there are seven MPs in Suffolk, but the county's population is growing faster than some other parts of the region. Therefore, to even up the numbers of voters in each constituency, a new seat needs to be created. However, the growth is not large enough to justify a whole new seat, so the Boundary Commission for England has recommended the creation of Haverhill and Halstead. That would cross the Suffolk-Essex border with about 60% of the population in Suffolk and 40% in Essex. Most of the Suffolk population would be in the Haverhill area, although it would extend as far north as the A14 between Ruffham and Barrow. If the proposal goes ahead, the MP for the seat would have to work with both Suffolk and Essex County Councils. Haverhill is the fourth largest town in Suffolk, with an official population of 27,000, although including the villages just outside pushes this up to just over 4,000. But from both political and business point of view, it can sometimes feel rather detached from the rest of the country. The main links for the town are west, the A1307 to Cambridge is the main road link and many of the residents look to Cambridge for jobs as the nearest metropolitan area. Road links to the county town of Ipswich are very poor. The most direct 36 mile route via Sudbury takes 68 minutes and the fastest 44 mile route via Bury St Edmunds takes 62 minutes, according to the A. Cambridge is 20 miles away and drivers can expect to complete the journey in 40 minutes. Business groups are determined to maintain its identity. Steve Elsom, chair of the local Chamber of Commerce, said Suffolk Chamber has many members in Haverhill and believes that the town has a great future ahead of it, not least thanks to the diversity and energy of its business base. We continue to work with others for upgrades to the infrastructure not least the road network, in and around the town to ensure that it can take full advantage of its proximity to economic centres in Suffolk, Cambridgeshire and Essex. 
On a political level, the the idea of a split constituency has caused head-scratching as it prepares its bid to take part in the government's latest devolution trial, which ministers have said has to be based on existing county boundaries. Those involved with the bid are puzzled that the government is, on the one hand, saying it wants to strengthen counties, administrative identity while its boundary commission is going across county boundaries when drawing up new constituencies. This is only the first draft of the proposed new constituencies and there already has been an opportunity for people to comment. There had been calls for a cross-border constituency to link Suffolk with Norfolk rather than Essex, but it seems unlikely that this will be accepted. The Norfolk constituencies are far more average-sized than some in Suffolk and Essex, and to start on picking the proposals would require redrawing boundaries across three counties and 35 constituencies. However, there is one huge question mark over this. The earliest the new boundaries could be introduced, so long as they are approved by MPs, is July 2023, in time for a May 2024 general election. But if PM Boris Johnson wants to go to the country a year early, the election will be fought on the old boundaries and the process could have to start all over again. A retirement complex of apartments and bungalows could be built on land at a farm to help deal with the growing demand for housing for elderly people. McCarthy Stone has launched a consultation with residents on plans to build 43 new apartments and 10 bungalows at Dairy Farm Halesworth. Matt Wills, Divisional Managing Director, Midlands for McCarthy Stone, said the plans provide a fantastic opportunity to deliver much-needed retirement living accommodation in Halesworth, along with community benefits. The homes would be built near to shops and services with on-site parking available and residents benefiting from landscaped gardens as well as a residence lounge. However, McCarthy Stone said it would also transfer part of the land to Halesworth Town Council so it can be put to community use. The site is ideally located for residents to access local shops and services with nearby bus routes into the town centre and the train station providing transport links across the wider region, Mr Wills said. We're proposing a sensitive design that respects the character of the local area and we want to hear local views on our proposals before we finalise our planning application. People who want to have their say should visit the consultation website at www.mccarthyandstoneconsultation.co.uk forward slash Halesworth. McCarthy Stone is also set to start building a new retirement complex on the site of the East Anglian Daily Times former office in Lower Brook Street, Ipswich. The firm had originally pulled out of the project but this year confirmed work would be going ahead after all. There will be 25 one-bedroom apartments and 26 two-bedroom apartments in the Ipswich development, as well as 11 two-bedroom cottages. 
The first sales are not expected to be completed until the autumn of 2022, with residents not expected to move in until the first half of 2023. And now we're going to move on to some general items. And my first item is news that the Baths Hall in Ipswich is to stage concerts again has brought back memories including the famous Led Zeppelin gig staged there almost 50 years ago. The former St Matthew's Baths in Civic Drive was a popular gig venue in the 1960s and 70s when boards were laid over the pool. It was announced this week that it is to be one of the venues for the Sound City Ipswich Festival from October the 1st to the 2nd. Nigel Rea captured photos of the memorable Led Zeppelin concert on November the 16th, 1971, after smuggling his camera into the venue. I was a director and cameraman for educational filmmaker Bolton Hawker Films in Hadley, and I used to take my camera everywhere, he said. He added there were rumours that Peter Grant, Led Zeppelin's manager, had been confiscating cameras and recording equipment and putting them in a bucket of water. Fortunately, Nigel's camera escaped that fate, and he was able to get onto a balcony where he had a good view. His photos show just how small the stage was where the band played. Robert Plant asked which was the deep end, and he was talking about his trip to America, he, rec he recalled. Nigel said, Led Zepp did their full set despite the intimacy of the venue, including full encores. For their acoustic set, they all lined up at the front. They were so close to the audience. Bootleg recordings of the set appeared on CD and can now be heard on YouTube. Many other concerts were also staged at St Matthew's Baths Hall and Nigel remembers seeing Gino Washington, The Equals and many more. Other famous acts to appear included Deep Purple, The Who, Cream featuring Eric Clapton, The Move, The Sweet and Status Quo. David Vincent writes, When there was a rock band on the and the crowd on the floor danced, the whole place would shake and bounce. It was a wonder it never collapsed. I remember seeing Rod Stewart twice, I think. Cream? Julie Driscoll and the Brian Auger Trinity and many more. Do you remember gigs at the Baths Hall? Email judy.rimmer at archant.co.uk A prison inmate has taken the first steps towards turning his life around by finding employment during the final months of his sentence. Jack Goldstraw was jailed for six years in 2019 for his part in a violent brawl in Cambridgeshire. But after a year at HMP Peterborough, the 33-year-old gained Category D status, making him eligible for transfer to Britannia House, an open prison in Norwich. Open prisons have minimal security and allow offenders to spend time away from the prison on licence for educational or work purposes. My lifestyle from the age of 18 to 28 was somewhat chaotic and irresponsible, said Mr Goldstraw. I was partying, drinking and fighting too much. When I was first jailed and found out what open prison was, I did everything I could to get there. 
you have to engage with prison life. There is lots of scope to go down the wrong path. So, for me, it was about staying strong-minded and focused. A few months into his time at Britannia House, Mr Goldstraw received a visit from Gez Cheetle, owner of Thetford's Thomas Paine Hotel. He also runs Prism Start, a community interest company which helps those in prison system to find work. In 2017, I visited HMP Norwich and saw how much talent was being wasted, said Mr Cheetle. The trouble is, as soon as ex-offenders declare a criminal record, employers don't want to know. We don't charge anything. We are simply trying to bridge the gap between prison and employment. Soon enough, Mr Cheetle was able to find work for Mr Goldstraw with a farmer based in Brandon. Over the past few weeks, he has been carrying out a variety of maintenance and construction tasks, even learning how to use farmyard machinery. With 14 months of his jail term still to go, Mr Goldstraw is simply enjoying being on the path towards a normal life. When you go to prison, it strips you down and takes away a lot of your well-being, he added. I don't want to come across as wanting sympathy because ultimately I am in prison, but this is a light at the end of the tunnel. Thousands of cash machines were put out of action during the first national lockdowns between March and May last year, with virtually none being replaced according to new data. Consumer group Which used cash machine data from Link and found 8,000 ATMs have disappeared in the past 18 months, a fall of around 13%, with the vast majority going during the first lockdown. Separately, Analysts found that from the first national lockdown in March 2020 until the end of restrictions in July 2021, there were 801 bank branch closures, with another 103 set to close their doors by the end of the year. This includes sites like the TSB branch in Holt and Lloyd's closing its Mildenhall Bank. It follows a new survey which found 50 7% of people have experienced one or more issues using cash machines or finding a high street bank. In the past year, one in four experienced at least one cash point issue, including 17% who said the ATM had run out of cash or had not been working. A councillor's call for action to tackle HDVs using roads in Bury St Edmunds residential areas will be considered next week. On Thursday, West Suffolk Council's Overview and Scrutiny Committee will discuss Councillor Trevor Beckwith's call for action on the impact of the Eastern Relief Road and A14 Junction 45 on the Morton Hall residential area. In the call for action, Councillor Beckwith said since the opening of the Eastern Relief Road, now called Ruffham Tower Avenue, and improved A14 Junction 45 in September 2017, HGV traffic in residential areas, including Ortwell Road, Beddingfield Way and Skyliner Way, had increased to an unacceptable level. 
he has suggested introducing a weight restriction in Ortwell Road to encourage usage of Junction 45 rather than estate roads. Work looks set to start soon on the multi-million pound regeneration of one of Felixstowe's prime seafront sites, which has stood empty for more than 30 years. The project will see development of what was known as the Cavendish site, once home to the Art Deco Cavendish Hotel. Over the years, a number of schemes have been put forward for the 1.44 acre site, but none of them have ever been built. Now the land is to be used for a six-storey development of 59 homes, plus tourist-related uses, such as restaurant, shops or cafe. Permission was agreed three years ago and the site put up for sale. Now Ruby Homes East Anglia Limited is preparing to start work on the project. The company has been carrying out background work and in preparations and liaison with East Suffolk Council over the details of the plans for the site at the junction of Sea Road and Beach Station Road. Among documents submitted last month was a construction management plan which outlines how the project will be built, detailing such issues as dealing with noise, vibration, dust, working hours, site monitoring, safety and so on. While Ruby Holmes says a start date has yet to be confirmed, it says the six-storey main building will take two and a half years to complete and the houses will take 18 months. The development will feature 48 flats, mostly one bed and two bed, and 11 three-bed homes. There will also be three commercial units at street level, below the flats which will create around 30 jobs. Community leaders are delighted with the project. The latest is a string of projects as part of the regeneration of the resort with more to come and shows investments and confidence being shown in the resort by the private sector. Projects completed in recent years on the seafront include the new pierhead and restoration of the beachside gardens, while work is underway on a contemporary restaurant at Martello Park and plans have been submitted for a beach hut village, an expansion of the Spa Pavilion Theatre. A former photojournalist in the 1960s has shared some rare photos of his time out at sea capturing the lives of trawlermen in Lowestoft. Dr David Lewis Hodgson, now aged 79, has lived an exciting life, working much of it as a photojournalist capturing photos of everything from the Beatles to the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Now he works as a clinical psychologist at the University of Sussex. But in March 1960, aged 19, he had the opportunity in his final year of university at Regent Street School of Photography to specialise in a final year project and he chose to focus on the North Sea Trawlerman. Talking about how he came to be a photojournalist, Dr Lewis Hodgson said, I originally trained to be a doctor doing a medicine degree, but I quickly realised this was not for me. So I then trained as a photojournalist, and as part of my final project, 
I got the opportunity to head out to sea from the lower stoffed coast to capture the lives of the trawler men. He wrote to McFisheries, a branded retail fishmongers, to ask whether he could go out with a set of low stoffed trawlers, and they agreed. In March 1960, it was his first time ever out at sea. He said, Lowestoft was alive and teeming with life at that point in time. I spent three weeks on this tiny little vessel with all the crew. It was an eight-man crew and all of them were such hard workers. Twenty-four hour days, just constantly finding fish, bringing them on board, cutting them up and gutting them, and then repeating this process. It was not for the faint-hearted. I felt ill for a while, but I soon managed to find my sea legs. Much of the technology around fishing has changed over the years, but it is still a tough industry. He said, I captured around 2,000 black and white photos whilst out there for the three weeks. I took photos of everything to form a photo essay. I have the utmost admiration for the crew, even until this day. Whilst I have met John Lennon and took photos of the Troubles, my memories of the Lowestoft trawlermen are still vivid. Households in East Suffolk will no longer be able to put food waste in their garden rubbish bins from this week. Council officials are warning people that if they break the new rules, their brown green bins will not be emptied because of the contamination. The changes come into effect from Wednesday, September the 1st. From that date, all food waste must go in the general waste bin, which is grey or black. A council spokesman said, processing food and garden waste together is an expensive process, and this change will not only cut down on the high cost of processing the fractionally small food waste part of the stream, we are working with the government and other districts to find a way to collect food waste more efficiently. The garden waste bin can be used for grass cuttings, flowers and plants, hedge clippings, twigs, windfall fruits, hay and straw, and vegetable waste, uncooked seeds and skin, not cooked foods. Work has begun on a 120 space car park in Woolpit. Mid-Suffolk District Councillors were joined by NHS representatives to mark the start of construction this week. The car park will serve both Woolpit Health Centre and the local community. It follows the transfer of land to the District Council by David Wilson Homes, who are currently building new homes in the village. As businesses and residents are consulted on extended pedestrian hours, it has been revealed a major Bury St Edmunds Street is busier now than in 2019. Businesses and residents are being asked for their views on extended traffic restrictions, which are introduced in Abbeygate Street predominantly to support hospitality businesses by providing outdoor dining facilities as pandemic restrictions ease from April, but also to enhance the street atmosphere and improve safety for pedestrians. As part of the six-month trial, the street was closed to traffic from 8am to 6pm daily instead of the 10am to 4pm restriction previously in place. 
This week, as Business Improvement District organisation Arbury St Edmunds asked businesses for their feedback, Chief Executive Mark Cordell said footfall in Abbeygate Street was higher this summer than in 2019. Abbeygate Street has been the busiest street in the town this summer, and that has coincided with the extended closure, said Mark. Abbeygate Street has always been the location of our only footfall camera, and therefore I can tell you footfall is higher than in 2019. But we are also aware that it isn't necessarily the case around the whole town. However, we know there are more people coming into that part of town, Abbeygate Street, than in 2019. Undoubtedly, the Abbey Gardens is a contributing factor. Last week, the Abbey Gardens was named the fifth most visited free attraction in England, according to Visit England. Mark said he was aware the extended restrictions had caused challenges for the deliveries at some businesses, while another felt ATM was too early for the restriction to start. That's why it is important for all businesses to provide their feedback so it can be taken into account, said Mark. I think the street is enhanced with the outdoor dining and the feedback I have had from the public has been overwhelmingly positive in that regard. We will await the outcome of the consultation with the County Council, which should finish at some time in October. Asthma and respiratory patients will soon have the option to swap to a greener inhaler under a new initiative in Norfolk and Waveney. The region's clinical commissioning group, that is CCG for short, will offer some patients dry powder inhalers instead of metered dose inhalers. The dry powder inhalers could reduce a patient's carbon footprint by the equivalent of driving around 1,740 miles a year as it does not use powerful greenhouse gases to propel the medication into the patient's lungs. Patients will be able to discuss their choice at their next respiratory view review appointment and given training on how to use it. Michael Dennis, the CCG's Head of Medicine's Optimisation, said People who need to use metered dose inhalers should absolutely continue to do so. But if you have the choice of a greener option, do think about the environment. Inhalers can be returned to pharmacies or GB practice dispensaries for disposal or recycling. And now we're going to move on to some letters. And my le first letter is from Robin, Robin Davies in Horringer. Bill is damaging to our democracy. Not many people are talking about the government's police crime sentencing and courts bill. But if it passes Parliament, it will have an impact on all our lives. The bill gives unprecedented powers to the police to ban peaceful demonstrations outright and to ban noisy protests. The definition of a noisy protest includes a protest involving noise made by just one person. It's been revealed that the Police Federation was not consulted on this huge extension of police powers. Furthermore, a respected group of former police officers has expressed grave concerns. In a letter to the Home Secretary, they said, 
Echoing the concerns voiced by the National Police Chiefs Council, NPCC, and other professional bodies, we believe that this bill has dangerous and harmful implications for the ability of police officers to enforce the law and for the health of our democracy as a whole. If the next time a group of residents, or even a single resident, wants to protest against a housing development or a council decision, the police could just say no. You might expect this from the Chinese government in Hong Kong, but we shouldn't put up with it in the UK. If any other of your readers are worried about the prospect of their right to protest being curtailed, I would encourage them to write to their MP and ask them to oppose this repressive legislation. Or they could support organisations like Unlock Democracy, which are campaigning against the bill. And that was from Robin Davis of Orange. Uh, my first letter is from mm. Barry... Well, it's not a letter, it's Barry Peters, who's the editor of the Berry Pre Press. And he usually makes a contribution on the letters page. And this is his contribution this week. There's a line in one of my favourite films which struck me this week. If you build it, he will come. The lines from a farmer in Iowa whose late father revisits him through a baseball diamond he builds in the middle of nowhere. But it rang true when reading the report about Barry's medieval Abbeygate Street. Footfall there, the number of people recorded walking up and down the street, is higher than in 2019. We've all built up our town and now they are coming, in their droves. We can all make assumptions about why, but the figures are like for like and provide a snapshot. They don't say that those people spent anything in town or weren't simply skateboarders bunny hopping in front of the camera, but the figures are encouraging. The Abbey Gardens will be a huge factor, of course, but those same gardens were still there in 2019, of course. So let's not believe all the doom merchants and those who would hasten any shift to online shopping. Let's instead celebrate the fact that more people are coming to at least one of our major thoroughfares in West Suffolk and then try as businesses to appeal to them enough to want to come through our doors and spend their hard-earned cash on something which will give them a wonderful memory of our town. My next letter is from Gordon Halewood, who's the Vice Chairman of Trustees, The Bridge for Heroes. Thank you for all your donations. The Bridge for Heroes would like to thank everyone who donated to the charity on August the 7th in Bury St Edmunds. The total raised was a wonderful £667.60. There were no expenses for the day. This money will go towards the provision of holistic support to serving members and veterans of all our armed forces and their families delivered by the Bridge for the Heroes from our centre in Kings Lynn. Um, Graham read an, uh, an article about the taxes and the problems that the taxi drivers are having with the council. And my next letter is from Rachel Padman from Dalham and this is her thoughts on the subject. Why should all taxis have to be wheelchair accessible? As the taxi drivers themselves point out, many of us, in brackets their customers, prefer standard cars, which offer a much more comfortable ride than the approved London cab. 
It is surely enough if there are some wheelchair-accessible cabs, as it is if some, but not all, toilets are adapted for disabled people. After all, disabilities come in many forms, and what is good for one may disadvantage another, or non-disabled people in general. The Equality Act does not require that everyone has the same experience of any service. It bans direct discrimination, which means that you can't discriminate against someone simply because they are disabled. Indirect discrimination is permitted where the cost of providing a service is not proportionate, and that cost includes the negative effects on others. The Act is also clear that within each of the nine protected characteristics, no one expression of them has any priority. It is as illegal to discriminate against people for not using a wheelchair as it is to do the opposite. The taxi drivers would win this one in court. Better if the council finds an acceptable solution first. Thanks for picking up on that, Val. That was well spotted. Uh, my next letter is from Graham Day, Stowmarket. MP suffers from drone vision. Firstly, I would like to congratulate the Bury Free Press on the publication recently of the excellent drone photographs of the wildflower maze in the Abbey Gardens. Overall vision is often improved from an above ground and a higher perspective. During my time working in London, I heard many stories about a former GLC employee nicknamed Helicopter Hudson by his colleagues as he always insisted on taking a view from afar and not bothering too much about the detail. At the same time as opening the free press, I heard a radio interview given by our MP George Churchill. She was droning on and on in answer to the questions asked, trailing as always the party line. When the $64 million question was asked as to why she never answered emails and questions from her constituents, she began to filibuster, deviously, by turning the questions around more than usual. Time and time again, she did not answer why. She concentrated on her contacts with businesses and with projects she was championing. But what about her constituents' concerns? Nothing. Fine to take a helicopter or drone vision, but kindly address constituents' legitimate concerns. I would not expect any more from a minister who is always anonymous in Parliament and to her constituents. She needs to take a leaf out of her colleague's book, Tom Hunt, MP for Ipswich, who has to work extremely hard being in the historically most marginal seat in the country. However... I do not realistically expect to see any change in her approach. It will go on ad infinitum, turning the Bury constituency into a rotten borough. And with the elected dictatorship we now have, that makes me very fearful of democracy. In fact, I prefer to look at the pictures of the Abbey Gardens wildflower maze. A letter now from Bob Jones, who was the former CEO of West Suffolk Hospital. I joined the then bright, shining new West Suffolk Hospital in September 1973 as Deputy Hospital Secretary, 
prior to the transfer of the bulk of the services from the old West Suffolk General Hospital in Hospital Road in the spring of 1974. In the 1960s, very few new hospitals had been built since the foundation of the NHS in 1948. Faced with the daunting task of a wholesale replacement of the building stock over a relatively short period of time, the Department of Health had a project to explore standardised hospital designs in order to save on cost. One such approach was the Best Buy hospitals, one to be built in Bury and the other at Frimley in Surrey, sold as two for the price of one. Subsequently, East Anglia enthusiastically adopted this design concept and built three more at Kings Lynn, Galston for Yarmouth and Lowestoft and Huntingdon. A further one was built in Newham, London. Savings were to be achieved by the length of construction time, the use of industrial building techniques and reduction in number of beds. No more were ever built. West Suffolk Hospital attracted a huge number of national and international visitors and one of my jobs was to show these people around and to give presentations based on briefing notes provided by the Department of Health. I recall distinctly that within these was the statement that the building had a design life of 60 years, not the 30 that has been extensively quoted recently and as part of the case for a new hospital here. It really beggars belief that any government would knowingly embark on the design and construction of six hospitals with this short lifespan. Would anyone ever buy a house on this basis? I have checked my recollection of these assertions with Ian Baines, who was the commissioning officer for the new West Suffolk Hospital, and he confirms them. He subsequently went on to be CEO of Suffolk Health Authority. I can only surmise that the Department of Health discovered the unsuitability of this unproven construction technique and materials some little while ago and has sought to rewrite history in the process. The potential collapse of four hospitals in this part of the country is a scandal of the highest order in my view and currently only two of them have had any kind of promise of replacement. And uh, I have one more letter uh, before we move on to uh, something completely different. And this one is from Graham Day Stowmarket. A consummate and skilled musician. Sir, every so often in life there comes the sad passing of someone who has been an outstanding figure in one's formative years and beyond. Such has been the case of Charlie Watts, drummer for 50 years with the Rolling Stones. In my early teenage years at school, the choice was either the Beatles or the Stones. Being of a more rebellious nature, the Rolling Stones suited me better, as at that time they played American blues. Recognising his talent, Charlie had been bought a drum kit by his parents at an early age. Jazz influenced his drumming, 
He eventually found his way into legendary British blues man's Alexis Corner's band Blues, incorporated while still working as a graphic artist. He then met the other founding members of the band, and the rest, they say, is history. I saw him perform at the then Gaumont in Ipswich on a tour when the Stones were third on the bill, and then again, memorably, at the old Wembley Stadium in 1998. A quiet, modest man who eschewed the excesses of the rock and roll lifestyle, and who preferred to be at home in Devon with his wife and his Arabian horse stud farm. He was a consummate and skilled musician, although he only considered that he drummed and toured because it was his job. We shall never see the likes of him again. And my final letter is from J. Willard of Frinton. I'm afraid that Steve Patterson has taken my comments about building more prisons out of context. My point was that although he seems to think otherwise, crime has been steadily on the increase for as long as I can remember. And to my mind, the only way to reduce it is to put criminals behind bars for as long as possible and therefore off the streets to give some chance of the statistics reducing. For at least the last 30 years, the Home Office has fudged the crime statistics by reducing many crimes to misdemeanours, which are then not included in the crime statistics they trot out. Having been a victim of crime and just given a crime, in num a crime number for insurance purposes, I feel very let down that no attempt was made to catch the criminals concerned. Even had they been caught, a slap on the wrist is all they would have got from the bench, as there are so few prison cells available to properly deal with criminals, which is why I, and thousands like me, would like to see stiffer sentences, but no, this cannot happen until there are more cells. Mr. Pasterson talks about prisoners being rehabilitated instead of punished, but has obviously not seen the statistics for reoffending, which makes a mockery of that idea. He probably thinks prisons like Hollisley are ideal, but the numbers of absconders while on day release, and others even committing further crimes during these releases, make the victims of their crimes seem see the judiciary as toothless. When one sees criminals with over 200 court appearances for theft, just getting a fine or suspended sentence and released, the general public despair of justice ever being done. It must be very depressing for the police that when they do actually catch a criminal with hard evidence, the judges just give them a suspended sentence, which is why so many people are just given a crime number and no further action. It's about time the victims had as many rights as the criminals seem to have these days. And now we're moving on to something completely diff different. And this is just a little ditty on the wool packing at Ipswich, built in the mid-16th century as a country inn, located where Bolton Lane joins Westerfield Road and Tottenham Road. Below this establishment was a toll gate, where a toll traverse was paid by gigs and carts entering the town. Rather than pay this toll, people travelling into town would stable their horses at the Woolpack Inn, 
and park their gigs or carts in long lines in Westerfield and Tuddenham roads. When the toll gate disappeared, the wool pack lost much of its trade and subsequently converted its extensive stables into a slaughterhouse. The inn was purported to be an old smuggler's haunt and is supposedly haunted by an admiral turned politician, a persecuted monk and a disgruntled bar owner by the name of George. Well, they've certainly had more than their fair share of ghosts in that one. <laughs> uh, I'm going to look back now. This is looking back 25 years ago. I wonder if any of you might have been around when this was held. This was back in August 1996. A village fete held at Gedding Hall, which was then the home of Bill Wyman, and proved successful with around 300 people attending. Church warden Cynthia Goldstone, one of Gedding Fate's organisers, was pleased with the £830 raised for St Mary's Church in the village, despite the former Rolling Stones' last-minute absence. Among the attractions at the event were a tombola, clothes, books and cake sale, toad in the hole, bric-a-brac, a barbecue and two raffle prizes. No, two raffles, one with a prize of a pen and ink drawing donated by artist Paul Evans. Bill Wyman, you may well remember, was the bass player in the Rolling Stones. He was born in Lewisham, London in 1936. That was 25 years ago. Now, you were, none of you will remember 100 years ago. <laughs> West Suffolk Education Committee is the headline. There was little business of interest and a small attendance at a West Suffolk Education Committee meeting in August 1921. The meeting was held at the Shire Hall, Bury St Edmunds, and was headed up by the Reverend A. Northcote. The County Council referred the question of appointing a successor to Mr R. Aidy to the committee. Mr Aidy was the previous representative of technical, commercial and agricultural education who had recently resigned from his post. The chairman proposed for Reverend Dr Gray to be nominated for the role. It was claimed no one else in the community demanded as much respect as Dr Gray did. And now I'm moving back to a general item. And this one is a couple who celebrated the diamond wedding by hiring a coach to take all their friends on a trip to the seaside. Ross and Sue Weber from Thetford tied the knot at the Thorpe Road Methodist Church in Norwich on August 26, 1961. Mrs Weber, now 81, grew up in Hunstanton, where her parents ran a hotel. She and her family are still regular visitors to the resort, so the eldest daughter, Sarah, suggested an outing to the coast would be the ideal way to celebrate their big day. I said I didn't think so to start with, said Mrs Weber, but I got persuaded into it and everyone seems to think it was a good idea. The bus was duly booked and left Thetford on its 90-minute journey to the coast, almost full with 48 on board, many from the town's Methodist church where the couple worship. Driver Tony McKeever from Thetford-based coach services said, They were fairly well behaved, there was no climbing over the seats or anything like that. 
Just you wait and tow with the way back, one passenger replied. Mrs Weber, who taught maths at Thetford Grammar School until she retired last year at the age of 80, told the party they were free to enjoy the day where they like as long as they were back at the bus station by 4pm. The couple, who have daughters Sarah Adams, 57, and Ruth Garbutt, 54, met at the Methodist Church Youth Club in Norwich. Mr Weber, now 88, worked as a gas engineer before he retired. Asked the secret of a long and happy marriage, he said, It's a learning curve through life. We're still learning about each other. With grey skies, a few spots of rain and a keen breeze blowing, it wasn't exactly a day for the beach. Mrs Weber said she expected most people would sample a few of the town's cafes and tea shops. <laughs> a blind veteran from Stowmarket has won a silver medal in the National Visually Impaired Bowls England's Pairs competition. Steve Gill finished second in B2 category of the competition alongside his partner Lynn Bourne at the National Championships in Worthing. Steve said, It was very tight. We were only one game away from being champions, but I'm delighted with runner-up. Clever man. Hmm. Gosh, yeah. Right, now I've got another article... And this one uh, is young people in Ipswich were given a taste of skateboarding thanks to a day of lessons on the waterfront. Mm. The team from Skate Suffolk hosted the free sessions and skate jam outside the Colt Cafe Bar on Neptune Marina on Saturday. The team is made up of local skateboarders, including sponsored riders, who want to help enhance the public perception of the sport and inspire its next generation. They have been trained by Skateboard GB to become licensed coaches and have previously run successful lessons at the White House Skate Park. Funding for the event was secured with thanks to the National Lottery and Groundwork East. George Yarnton, one of the trustees at Skate Suffolk, said events like these are all about helping children build confidence, make friends and learn valuable life skills. Those can include learning how to fail in order to eventually succeed, as well as building a community with those around you. Mr Yarnton, who works as a designer for local clothing brand Hoax, said, It's all for engaging with the community, teaching them skateboarding and helping them understand it a bit more. From our experience, we all came from different backgrounds. But our experience as skateboarders has brought us together as a nice community of friends. We feel it's important for kids, and especially now with the Olympics, to encourage people of all backgrounds to get involved. We're just trying to kickstart that and help build a community for people who maybe don't have much of a community themselves. Mr Yarnton added the group has been overwhelmed by the response to events so far with more events planned later in the year. He said it has been really good so far. Today's event has been really busy before the first session. We were fully booked by around 10am. I think each time we've done this, it's got even busier, which is a real positive for us. The group is now running a survey on possible changes to the Stoke Bridge Skate Park, 
which would help it discourage non-skatepark users from using it as a place for antisocial behaviour and drug taking. That's a nice positive article to finish on, Graham. Yes. That means we are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, the East Anglian Daily Times, the Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from our producer Harvey, from your readers and editor Graham. Goodbye. And from me, Val. Goodbye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.